Thank you, uh, Sarah, for being with us. This is the Emerging Podcast, where we talk about emerging tech, emerging careers, and emerging people. Our guest today is Sarah L. Hanfi, if I can pronounce that correctly. Um, so a bit about Sarah. After finishing a computer science degree at Swansea University, she worked in the third sector across two charities for a couple of years. She then became a UX developer before gradually moving into the AI space. Now she is the head of AI and machine learning at Innovate UK. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, and she advises the UK Parliament on AI. And she also volunteers as a STEM ambassador. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. Is there anything that we missed in the intro? Anything else you'd like to mention? No, I, th I think that that gives a, a good a good starting point. Lovely. So let's kind of dive into um, your kind of early career transition. So you studied computer science at Swansea, and then you decided to work in the third sector. What prompted that um, that move, and how did you get into the your first role? Yeah, I mean, it makes it sound like there was maybe more of a plan than there was. Um, <laughs> I left university and I, I guess like a lot of people, um, I was at a point where I, I needed money. Um, so I started just, you know, applying for jobs in uh, related to the degree that I'd, I'd done. So obviously I, I did computer science, but just kind of general computer science without like a specialism in a, in a specific area. Um, but I think, um, you know, really kind of how I've approached most job selection processes and job choices is around kind of um, just using my gut and kind of um, trying to pick roles that excite me and um, align to my values. And really that has worked out so far. So yeah, so um, when I came out of uni, um, I saw some jobs in the charity sector. So um, I, I worked for the World Society for the Protection of Animals and um, Save the Children UK. Um, and so, yeah, it was really about kind of um, how I could utilize my skills, but also how I could work for um, either uh, causes or uh, later on um, technologies that I was passionate about and, um, and, and yeah, really that kind of fit with my values. So um, I, think, I think that's worked out as a strategy. I mean, it's not a strategy as such, but it is, it's worked quite well for me. Um, and I think, uh, you know, if you can find, you, you spend so much of your time at work. So if you can find that sweet spot where, it, you know, it's things that excite you and also um, you do feel passionate about, then um, then that's, that's the ideal really, isn't it? That's what everyone wants in a job. Absolutely. It seems like you had a good understanding of your passions and what you wanted to impact, I suppose. Did you have a good understanding of your yeah. skill set and how that would help you find a career? Well, I, I, I think I think they've evolved. Um, I think when I came out of university, I probably understood more like the tangible skills, like your technical skills, than I did um, some of the more softer skills. And I think and I think likewise with the values. You know, I understood areas that I was passionate about, but I don't think I'd I really um, maybe understood the broader picture of you know actually what makes what's the value that i bring to an organization i think that's that's only come as i've got much older and, and had you know more um more roles in my career have i actually a taken the time to think about my values more in a more structured way to actually say okay actually what matters to me in a job um and and also really think about the value that I bring because I think sometimes 
when you're good at things or those softer skills, it's very easy to assume, well, everyone's good at that. But actually, they're the things that I think not everyone is good at that. And because you find it easy, you dismiss it and you think, well, that's that's nothing. So those things I think are really powerful. And I think it's only as I've kind of gone through my career and maybe got a bit more confident to say, well, actually, that I am really good at that. And not everyone's really good at that. That I've got to that point where actually I think, you know, now when I'm looking for jobs, it's kind of like, not that I'm looking at the minute, but now, you know, I can say kind of, yeah, that, that job, that fits me. And actually it's almost you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. But I think, you know, maybe when I was younger, I didn't have the confidence or um, the time and space to really do that thinking. Definitely. And then you decided to move into the private sector and you worked at an organization called Volume as a UX yes. developer. Yeah. Did you have some experience with UX before? Or what kind of prompted that? I mean, so in, when I was in the charity sector, um, I was working in roles at the time. They were called like e-communications officer role. It feels quite dated now, but um, it was very much about managing their um, their online strategy and their online presence. So um, a lot of it was kind of um, sort of coming up with what we needed to do and overseeing some of those um, sort of like, I guess, agency relationships and steering. But there was some hands on uh, on stuff. Um, I guess when I moved, I wanted to be more hands on and technical again, because I felt like actually I almost moved a little bit away from that side of my degree. And it would really benefit me if I was kind of actually um sort of keeping at the coalface and, and, and enhancing my skills in a kind of a commercial environment. Um, so, yeah, so uh, I, I'd moved. Um, so I, I was living in London. I'd moved out of London. So, you know, it was prompted by kind of, you know, what was available in the sort of the local area to me. Um, and Volume was, it started life as a B2B marketing agency, but um, evolved into, um, you know, developed a lot of bespoke tech for, um, for big corporates. So uh, people at Liberty Global, Virgin Media Business, um, BP Castrol. Um, so I, I was working there um, doing the development, but actually, again, sort of, it's that natural evolution of, I think, um, you know, when you're in a role, if opportunities present themselves, and I was fortunate enough that in my time at Volume, opportunities did present themselves um, for me to move into, um, so roles that were um, managing developers and, and in the team and managing the workload, um, but also then moving across into the consultancy. So, actually that kind of then sort of found felt like more of a sweet spot so it, in some ways i guess it was going back a little bit to what i was doing um in the charity sector but actually i think because it was more on the consultancy side it was able for me to use my kind of technical knowledge but also um use those kind of soft skills i mean my background I, I i wasn't going to do a computer science degree when initially i was going to do um history degree and so i hadn't taken uh, mass a level um I therefore kind of had to kind of pick and choose which universities, because some universities filled it at the time anyway. I don't know if the situation changed, but like you had to do mass A level to do a computer science degree. Um, but some didn't and some, you know, really uh, high and important or uh, strong performing universities like Durham University, for example, you know, didn't feel like they needed you to do a mass um, A level. Um, so I, I'd done a flip, but I've always kind of enjoyed that sort of um, hu the humanities and the arts and to this day kind of do performing in my spare time and you know do uh, musical theatre so it felt for me like a really good um sweet spot of the kind of um the sort of the performing and the the arts and the humanities and also the kind of the technical side of things which I really enjoy that's really interesting and then you within volume you transition towards being to be working exclusively on AI 
Can you yes. name yeah. uh, what was the most interesting project that you worked on? Oh, um, so this is going back a few years now. I'll try to think of uh, what was probably. I mean, I did a lot of. Um, I think when when I started doing that, we were probably at that point where AI was starting to it was starting to pick up again. It was a bit early. So a lot of um, the work I did was really around kind of running workshops with a lot of companies um, on actually what AI can do. And some of those, although, so there were some interesting like strategic projects I worked on, actually companies that are a bit further along on their journey working on the strategy. But I think some of the most interesting things were more just those um, general kind of actually helping people understand what AI can do. Um, that was a real sweet spot for me because it, it is... Uh, I think, I mean, even now we see that there are organizations that I think, you know, particularly at sea level, there's not that real understanding of what AI can do for them. And and uh, they see things in the media and actually it doesn't translate to how that's going to be beneficial to their business. And so actually getting groups of um, sort of senior stakeholders together and being able to take them from the kind of the what they see in the media or what they might imagine from films to the kind of the real level projects and and applications that clients um you know that we've helped clients with and and um uh things that can are tangible and can benefit their business i mean that that was amazing and it was, you know that was really um uh i got a lot of satisfaction out of that so so you you already had a bit of experience teaching people about ai and and then innovate uk how how did that opportunity come about and what what did innovate uk the ai side look like when you joined um so when i moved to innovate uk i was again i was i was looking for a new opportunity but i i think you know i was just opening keeping my eyes open to sort of what was around and um to be honest i wasn't aware of innovate uk before i moved to the organization um although volume did do R&D and, you know, claims R&D tax credits. It wasn't something we'd ever engaged with as an organization um, when I was there. Um, so, yeah, so Innovate UK was quite new to me. But again, it just it sounded like a really exciting opportunity because you would be seeing what was going on in AI at such a macro level, whereas, you know, it's great working in a company, you, you know, you get to solve the problems and you get to um, really reap the rewards. So when you're working on a project, you see it through to the end, you see the, you know, what the outcomes of, whereas this is obviously, it's, it's very different in that it's the macro level of um, what lots of different organizations are doing in the UK. So I, um, I sit in a very uh, cross economy position, so I don't look after a, a specific sector. Um, so within um, my portfolio and my team's portfolio, we have um, AI projects that, you know, they can be in real estate or they can be in, uh, manufacturing or you know they can be in a number of different sectors or they can be some of the more like deep tech um uh sort of fundamentals um you know obviously not at the not too early stage because we tend to fund sort of um later technology readiness levels but but certainly kind of looking at things like you know like maybe it's like video compression or or some of those sorts of areas so it's um in that respect, you know, it's fascinating because you see such a breadth of, uh, of AI. So, yeah, so it was it was that opportunity really to um, to get to see what was going on across the UK and to be part of, I guess, um, representing the UK and understanding, you know, what the opportunities are, what the challenges are, and ho hopefully being part of the solution, you know, by informing policy or designing competitions for those companies. Um, 
again was seemed a really exciting opportunity um and yeah and i mean i'm still here sort of five years later so um it has been a really exciting opportunity because you you get you know no day is the same and you get to see um see you know work with some you know really fascinating uh, entrepreneurs and, and innovators so yeah it's, it's brilliant nice and what i guess from being someone that's coming from a technical background how did you approach what did you have to learn or what skills did you have to develop to now transition from being this individual contributor that's you know working on ai project already being a consultant where you could get to think about things critically and look at maybe a higher level now you're at the macro level what did what did you have to learn and what did you have to teach to other people that were working with you yeah that's i mean that's an interesting question i think i mean i think there's a lot of transferable skills if i'm honest because in some ways we're we're trying to understand the challenges of the sector so a lot of it is kind of consultation speaking to companies um who are on the ground and who are you know they're the ones that are facing the challenges and so being able to hold workshops um you know publish surveys, get that data in and, and you speak to people and understand what their challenges are is quite similar to what you would do in consultancy. Um, and then it's about designing what the solution is to that problem. So again, it, that for me is quite similar. And also there's almost like the, the equivalent biz dev piece because often we we have to make the case um, to to get funding to run the programs that we want to do that are we think will be beneficial to the um, to the sector and, and to the companies that we're trying to support. So for me, there's actually lots of, um, lots of, I guess, uh, equivalence to that consultancy role. I think, um, I think the biggest things you have to learn is obviously the private sector and the public sector, they, they do have different ways of working. You know, we, um, we're funded by the taxpayer, so it's taxpayer money. So obviously, um, the sort of the, the bureaucracy has to be increased because we have to make sure that what we're doing, you know, we're not funding things it's not like I can just say, oh, I think that's a good idea. I want to fund it. There has to be um, that level of due diligence to make sure that that's the right way of, of spending taxpayer money. So I think there's that element of um, kind of process is, is um, that in itself is a learning curve and, and some of the sorts of um, uh, strategic cases and economic cases, that for me was was probably the biggest learning curve, kind of like understanding how the sort of the government machine works and and all the sort of uh, different organisations that operate around the the sort of the the civil service. I think I thought I had quite a good grasp of government and civil service before I came into Innovate UK, and then I realised quite quickly that that wasn't really the case. And actually, um, you, yeah, it takes a little bit of time to get up to speed. I think with with some of those those areas. Right now, we can see how, like you said, there's a disconnect with C-level execs that are trying to adopt data science into their businesses. They don't really understand it. Now I'm picturing five years ago in government trying to help in AI. What did, like the gap of knowledge was probably even bigger than it is now. Yeah, I mean... I think I think we, there's still work to do. There's still work to do in um, in the private sector. There's still work to do in the public sector. I, I mean, the private sector is a, is a big focus for us. So um, we we know that you know there are big corporations adopting lots of AI, but we know that the pace and scale of adoption of AI in the UK isn't really where it needs to be if we want to reap the kind of the economic and societal benefits. Um, that are, are going to bring the, all the benefits that we hear about regularly. Where if you know if you're 
day-to-day in AI like I am, there's all these figures touted around about the economic benefits or the societal benefits that AI will bring. But unless we're actually adopting that technology in this country, we've got lots of people developing it. You know, we've got great innovators, a world-class research base. But if that's only getting adopted overseas, the benefits won't be felt by the UK society. Um, so we really need to be adopting, you know, the current state of the art at pace and scale um, to kind of to get some of those businesses, you know, to get their their digital um, uh, levels up so they can adopt these technologies and, and get them into a place where they can. So then as, you know, as the more cutting edge technologies come along because, you know, AI is evolving quickly and there's still um, technical advances that we do need, when that stuff comes along, we'll be in a better position to absorb it and actually um, reap the benefits of it. So I think, yeah, I mean, there's definitely um, the public sector, uh, the private sector, sorry, um, is an area that we're we're focusing on. So we're we're going to be launching a program um, specifically looking at the adoption of AI into low AI maturity sectors, but those that have kind of high growth potential for the UK. Um, but I think the public sector as well that you know there, there's definitely likewise ways that we can improve services and and you know and increase productivity and the efficiency of those services for for the UK population. Yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. What's I guess now now at, in 2023, what's what is that what is at the top of your mind these days? So I, I guess in a work capacity, the, the adoption program is is a big focus for us. Um, but I think more more broadly, um, and things that do feed into that, um, I think a lot about kind of you know how how we make sure AI works for everyone. And I think you know there's a number of different facets for that. Everything from making sure that actually the people who are um, involved in AI, so either that's from a, a technical perspective, so you know coming up and study you know studying computer science or related disciplines, um, is more diverse. Um, but also bringing in different disciplines. I think um, for a long time, we've sort of focused on like, you know, it's um, people who have technical backgrounds. They're the ones that are designing and developing and deploying AI. But actually, I think AI sits in that real, um, uh, it is that spot that it really needs more diversity of thought. So um, we need arts and humanities. We need social sciences involved in, you know, actually how do these tools get adopted into into companies and how can we improve that and, and um, remove the barriers to adoption? Um, but also with the, you know, the ethical considerations, that's where our arts and humanities colleagues and social sciences can really help as well. Um, but also because it it concerns um, specific topics, you know, we need those subject matter experts um, understanding they don't, not necessarily to be a developer or you know data scientist but to understand enough that actually we can bring parties together because rarely do you have someone who's an expert in i don't know uh earth observation and someone who's an expert in ai or or whatever disciplines it is actually we need to bring um bring more disciplines together and more different sectors i think together um so yeah so i think how how we do more of that connectivity and more of um increasing the diversity in in ai development and and just generally raising awareness of ai i think is something that um is i guess front and center of my mind quite a lot of the time that's very interesting we work with quite a few universities and university students and we where we basically one of the things we're doing is building a community of people that are interested to get into AI and data science. And that doesn't necessarily have to mean students uh, on computer science degrees. It can be 
from a range of different backgrounds, like obviously mathematics, physics, but it can also be degrees that have um, some kind of numerical component to them. So these can be psychology, um, geography, physical geography, and then kind of the list goes on and on. So I think creating awareness of the opportunities, and there's a, a growing list of opportunities in industry, is very important to get more people to understand that even if you have a different background, that doesn't mean that you're disqualified or that you're less qualified, less capable. It means that you bring something else to the table and there's there's a space for you. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think people who haven't studied um, like a technical discipline or degree and want to um, get into the more the data science the government have funded um, AI and data conversion courses which is very much designed for people who haven't you know they haven't that's not their background they've studied a different discipline and they want to do a master's to, to come across so I think there's there's roots for people who you know maybe become interested in AI like I did I mean obviously I did it before my degree but you know have been on a different path and then think oh actually I, that's more my interest area and want to kind of pivot um, but like you say, I think there is a need to create space for people who haven't done those those areas, but they, you know, there's still value in in bringing them to the table and helping um, helping kind of design the solutions and making sure that actually things are going to be used by by the public. And I think that's where there's, there's the other um, big need is actually just raising the general public awareness of of what AI is capable of. Again, it's not. Um, it's not in making everyone data science or making everyone developers, but it's just about that challenging that narrative that we see in the media of what AI is and also what the future with AI is going to be like. Because I think ultimately these are technologies, people are designing them, people are deploying them. And the more we talk about what they are capable of and what we want to how we want to see them used in society and what we want society to be like, I think that that only helps create the right environment so that you know innovators can design things that are going to be adopted and and um, do benefit benefit um, society because we've, we we're having those conversations. Um, you know, it's not just siloed off with you know developers talking about what would be what they'd like to see and 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 trying to sort because of, you know personally you know I don't believe anyone developers are you know they're trying to cause harm or you know they're trying to develop solutions but you know you only know what you know and if you're um if the people that are developing it and the people that are working on those solutions are only from certain economic backgrounds or cultural backgrounds then you can only design for what you know so actually the more we're having those conversations i think that can only improve the output and and subsequently the adoption of of these technologies 100 percent true that's that's very interesting and in addition to the bias, the inherent bias that might go into the development of a specific technology, there's also you, a level of, um, you can't really control what people are going to do with something once you've built it. So for example, with ChatGPT, I'm sure you're familiar with it, um, there's been an increase in um, reports of misuse in the sense that people are asking ChatGPT how to create malware that specifically target um, a specific group of people or have a yeah. specific kind of functionality. And the creators of OpenAI can't really, they could imagine that this would happen, but they, once you'd release it in the public, there's only so much you can do to prevent it. So, well, that leads me to a question because I, I assume that from your perspective, you look at the adoption of AI from multiple 
points of view, and one of them is obviously risk. And the question I have is is about how do you do you create programs that are specifically targeting um, and looking at the risks of AI, or are these so, is a risk factor embedded in each of the programs that you create? So. Um at Innovate UK, I mean, I, I don't know if it's worth me maybe giving a little bit of an overview into Innovate UK or, or whether Please that's do, yeah. kind of part of the, yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess um, uh, Innovate UK is the UK's innovation agency. So we're part of a larger organization called UK Research and Innovation, which um, brings us together with seven research councils and Research England. So the research councils are obviously um, dealing more with that kind of uh, more fundamental research that comes out of academia and in a number of different areas. So um, be that uh, engineering and physical sciences or social sciences. Um, whereas Innovate UK is very much focused on um, supporting business-led innovation. Um, so our role is, um, or we like to use the phrase, uh, involve, no, inspire, involve, invest. So um, that's everything from, um, you know, the thought leadership. So, um, putting strategies out there of, you know, what we think, um, how we think things might evolve in certain sectors or technology areas. Um, it's also some of the um, sort of non-financial support. So um, support to businesses to help them grow, but also the financial support. So obviously, that you know, that's where your questions around some of the, the probably the more financial interventions that we do. So we run competitions, either um, it's everything from grant funding to loans. Um, and those competitions have, uh, have, eligibility criteria, they have scope criteria. Um, and so we do have an option to incentivize certain behaviors in those those competitions. I think we run we run a variety of competitions. So we run um, uh, a competition called SMART, which is a very open and catch-all um, competition. Now, obviously, we, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to fund anything that is um, obviously doing harm. So we have um, a, a robust assessment process. So applications come in if they're eligible for a competition they go to an assessment process um, and then they're you know they're judged on a number of things um, nowadays we ask them about their kind of equality diversity and inclusion we ask them their routes to market we ask them um, you know to try and get kind of like the sort of the, the likely economic growth that's going to come off the back of that and they're assessed on a, a number of different factors um, but because so some of the competitions are, are very broad in their scope so they might have different um, different specific requirements to other competitions. So, um, for example, I'm I'm currently um, involved in a competition that we're running, which is about developing um, tooling to, I guess, reduce the bottlenecks for AI um, development. So, you know, things like in the data pre-processing phase. But we're very much looking at um, tooling that will demonstrate demonstrably lead to responsible AI and trustworthy AI. So for us, obviously, we're putting that more front and center. Um, so there's certainly ways that we we can incentivize and we do incentivize um, behaviors through our competition. But I think the, the flip side of that coin is then also the, the kind of the regulation that comes out of government, I think, because um, like you say, I think there's an education piece for, for some organizations because of actually how you how you approach the AI ethics conversation and, and how you how you work through that process and there's been some really positive I think steps um, so organizations like the digital catapult with their machine intelligence garage have, have produced quite robust frameworks which it, it's just 
questions that companies can iterate through. So to get you thinking about the right questions as you're going through that development. Um, but like you say, there's no guarantee that you can think of every scenario once you put a tool into the world and, and it gets used, it might get used in a way that you can't see. And that's where I think the government's uh, regulations and the policies on, on AI moving forward become increasingly important. So it's, it's kind of increasing the awareness and, and education of, I think, um, the, those people developing the AI solutions to, to try and incentivize that behavior. So, you know, you're you're considering um, security, you're considering uh, ethics upfront, um, but then also having the catches and, and the guardrails. So, you know, if things aren't going to plan, that we've got the regulation that can then deal with the consequences. So I suppose from your perspective, what's holding back the adoption of AI in the UK? And you, the UK is a leader amongst um, most countries, but as, yeah, what, what, what do you think are the institutional barriers or any other kind of barriers that are holding back? Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, th there's a number of different things, really. I think, um, you know, skills is a big area. So I think, um, as we've already kind of touched on, I think both the, the sort of the skills within adopting organizations, um, maybe, you know, there's awareness and there's um, understanding that needs to be built up. Um, first to make the case you know so to demonstrate you know what's the roi of ai what you know why should we be investing in it and and making sure that that case is strong but also i think in some of the skills of you know the people who are going to be working alongside those tools or um are the ones that have to operationalize and scale the tools um then i think there's um information asymmetry is a, it's a phrase we use quite a lot in um mm. in civil servant service when we're making our business cases um but you know I think there's a disconnect between what adopters know, what developers know, what investors know, and actually we need to kind of start be bringing more of adopters and developers together. So they're actually understanding, um, you know, from an adopter point of view, they understand what they need to do to, to adopt AI within their organization and they're connected to the developers that can do that for them. Um, but also um, from a development point of view, I think it's important to understand actually what are the, the genuine market challenges that those organizations are facing. And I think that's certainly one of the things we're seeing with um, the program that we're looking to run because it's looking at low AI maturity sectors. I think there are some sectors of the UK that are much better understood. So um, finance, health, I think we see um, AI developers gravitate to those sectors more because they understand the challenges. Whereas some sectors, A, they've got challenges in that they may be less far along their digital transformation journey, but also I think it's developers maybe don't understand the, the the challenges that AI could be used to address and where, you know, where like some of that low hanging fruit is. And so therefore those, those sectors get a little bit um, neglected. And I think similarly with investment, investment gravitates towards um, those sectors where the, the return on investment is really well understood, understandably. Um, but if we can do a bit more of that um, connectivity and, and almost, uh, helping to address those information asymmetries that as well will be um will be important for kind of just making sure that all sectors and all regions of the uk benefit from ai rather than just you know uh attention gravitating to certain regions or certain sectors that makes sense you mentioned skills and i think that's something that comes up very often um how do you, how would you categorize skills or have you seen any 
when it comes to skills, if you ask data scientists, for example, in different industries, they talk about different things. They describe their roles differently. And there seems like there's no kind of cohesive communication and language around skills. And if we talk about skills development and getting people to understand the skills that they need to move into AI or to just be productive members in a, in a changing society, I feel like the, one of the first things we need to address is the communication around skills and make sure that everyone understands what skills, how do we talk about mm. skills? What are skills? What are art and skills? What's the difference between skills and knowledge and things like that? Have you seen, is that, is that a, a topic that comes up? Yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the terminology and the language, I think is something in AI generally that um, is a bit of a problem because I mean, AI as a term, you could question how useful it is. We use it, but you know, really we're talking about a number of different technologies and that in itself, I think, isn't always especially helpful because then people have their own kind of interpretation of what they're talking about before you've mm -hmm. even started. Um, sure. So yes, I, I, I agree in the skill space. Um, that's, that's very interesting. I suppose, again, we talk a lot about AI and how different people understand AI. From your perspective, when you, you mentioned that you hear about the benefits of AI every day, and there's new things that are popping up left and right. How do you distinguish between hype and real opportunity? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, yes. So lots of things come in and lots of things get badged AI. And I have things come into my inbox. And when you read <laughs> the imagine. detail, they're not AI. And I feel like I, I could have saved uh, sort of 15 minutes of my time from reading, reading something that I didn't need to read. Um, I think it, it it's really about kind of, yeah, understanding or getting sort of enough detail. And I think that um, that's where sometimes it's, it's a bit of a challenge. Like you know, when we, we're funding um, programs, you know, sometimes we get sent a summary description, like the public description that goes into the domain. And obviously companies don't put a huge amount of the technical detail in that because it's in the public domain. And so we get asked to kind of look at that and, and, and comment, but you don't have enough, um, you don't have enough information to be able to say this is hype or this is not hype. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, um, I think it's around just, just being able to kind of get access to, um, to just more detail. So, you know, being able to actually speak to the people involved in projects is not, is normally the most helpful way. Um, I, I mean, invariably, when things are coming into some of our more open competitions, they're, they're, you know, they're going for assessment. They're being assessed by independent experts. So that's not something we tend to get involved with. Um, so we've, we trust that the assessors that we've brought on board um, have that expertise to be able to say, <laughs> what they're talking about here, it's kind of bending the realms of, you know, or, or there's not sufficient detail because that's the other thing. It's like, um, the needs we need to be able to kind of understand what the company is looking to do to be able to assess whether we think that there's that kind of economic uh, societal benefit that come that will come out at the other end. So I think you know often if people are you know are, are hyping things up, it tends to fall down a bit when we start to look at the kind of you know the business case and and uh, what they're actually looking to do. So I think it probably comes out in the wash later on. Yeah, and I think also it's interesting because people sometimes forget and they think they can make big claims with AI, but they forget that fundamentally to be able to apply AI to something, a human needs to be able to do it themselves. And 
only then can you then apply AI, train it, learn from the human, and then just essentially do it much faster and with a much higher level of precision in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that I think is exactly what, you know, the, the problem is when you don't have enough awareness generally in society. So I think the more we can get people kind of having that kind of basic awareness, that stops some of this because, you know, I have a lot of friends or people come to me like, you know, we're down the pub and they'll ask me like whether they've heard something and what's the basis of that. And obviously, you know, I can sort of say, well, in everything that I see from Innovate UK, the innovators that they're working on, for everything I see from the academic base, there's not, you know, unless they've got some really uh, impressive IP behind closed doors that, you know, no one in the world knows about yet, it's very unlikely that that's happening. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, um, but not everyone has kind of access to someone that they can, that has the expertise to kind of quash some of those, the, the hype and those claims. So I think, yeah, that for me, I really want to see kind of more increased awareness sort of generally. Mm, Just a quick follow-up on that. What do you think about ChatGPT? Have you used it personally? Um, I haven't used it personally. I th I mean, I think it, it, it could have benefits. I think it's, I mean, it's very early days. Um, it's produced some interesting outputs, but I think it's also produced some, you know, wildly off the mark outputs. So, you know, it, it's very early days for, for the technology. I don't think it's threatening um, companies that have maybe gone down the route of employing sort of more standard conversational AI chatbot techniques at the minute. I think that's where we're staying at for a little while in, in that sort of space. But I think it's very exciting. I think that, that generative AI generally is very exciting. Um, and, and certainly on the, the kind of the chatbot side of things, I, I think there's real commercial value in that and there's real um, opportunities for that, maybe more so than the sort of the, uh, the visual generative AI. Um, so what, yeah, I think once it's, you know, it's at a maturity that it's kind of reliable for a business to use, I think it will be very powerful. Yeah, I think another characteristic about these models is that they also kind of improve exponentially. And particularly with ChatGPT, because it's released out to the public, there's a lot of quick iteration that's happening. And I've personally seen some significant improvements since the initial launch. And mm. I think they had an, imp an update on the 9th of January. And it seems like the quality is starting to improve. That being said, it's still, if you ask it to explain the benefits of eating grass or rocks it's still going to give you a very compelling argument yeah. for why you should eat rocks and, and i guess that's the thing like it, it's great for this kind of experimentation and research and you know uh, that's fantastic i guess it's just that reliability for you know to put that in a business context it's a model that you don't have visibility of you don't really have visibility of the data that's trained it and so <laughs> having the confidence that it's going to give you the results you want every time and you're not even what you know once it gets to a point where it's performing well enough then how does it drift away from that over time i think that's where i feel businesses you know would be have to be very cautious about using something like that we've seen it before with other you know other data sets like um image net where you know people were using that very much as a benchmark to train their algorithms and, and test their algorithms but actually what was the data going into that and, and some of you know some of the labeling of that data was you know 
hugely offensive and and so it, I, I think there needs to be a caution from an industry perspective about some of these um using some of these models where you're not you're not in control of the um the development of them and it, for you know for reputational reasons reasons absolutely yeah and in and probably one of the main reasons of the hype of chat gpt i think is also it just made it easier for anyone um to actually interact with ai whereas before you would need to have some level of understanding around prompt engineering to be able to actually just get potentially similar results. And I, I think that's the thing. I think we, we absolutely, like the technologies that we have now, like that, that shows the kind of where we need to be getting to, because I think there's, there's definitely a need to kind of evolve from what we do have, you know, both on that sort of, like you were saying, the human, uh, I guess the human interface into some of these technologies so people can work alongside them more easily um but i think also in kind of areas like you know um uh sort of making them more lower power computing um because you know with the environmental concerns around it, i think we need to move away from some of that and and also how we kind of deal with data so um being able to use smaller data sets a it kind of plays into that low power mode but also um and and addresses some of the climate concerns that we might have about some of the technologies but also it's going to help us with um use the technologies for more things so actually uh how can we predict like rare events so particularly on like you know if it's rare diseases and stuff like that so i think there's absolutely um evolution that needs to happen with some of the technologies and and if we if we have that it's it's going to be even more powerful um obviously that that takes time it takes research it takes investment um but yeah, but I think those are kind of some of the, the next sort of areas um, I think that we'll see as kind of priorities as AI that can kind of span multiple tasks, it can deal with smaller amounts of data, it can deal with data from different, um, you know, different types of data um, at the same time and, and has that kind of lower energy consumption, I think will be really powerful. Perfect. Well, Sarah, thanks a lot for your time. Um, is there anything you'd like to to promote or shout out before we call this off? So I think uh, um, just for me, with the, we have the obviously uh, if uh, there are any AI developers listening, we have the call out at the minute that closes on the twenty fifth of January, all about um, developing, as I was saying before, um, sort of tooling to address some of the bottlenecks that. Um, in the AI development process. And and we've got other funding calls. So if that one's not suitable, there's lots of other opportunities. So uh, the best advice is just to always keep checking our website because new things get added, um, added all the time. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sarah, for your time. This was a very interesting conversation. No problem.